So for this sermon, we're looking at Abiding in Christ, John 15, verses 1 through 8. Jesus says, I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself, unless it abides in the vine, neither can you, unless you abide in me. I am the vine. You are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers. And the branches are gathered uh, the, the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, and burnt. And if you abide in me, my words abide in you. Ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. By this, my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. Father, we bow our heads and our hearts before you today, and we thank you for that great sacrifice that was just sung about, that we could look to you today, to know that you're a God of love and a God of mercy, and yet we know that you're a God of judgment, and you're a God who gathers fruitless branches and throws them into the fire. And so we're praying, God, that you would just help us to understand this text, help us to be encouraged today, and help us also to regard this warning given in Scripture, that we might examine ourselves before you, and that we might make sure that only by your grace and only for your glory, that we would be truly abiding in the vine on this day. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I believe that one of Jesus' most vivid and powerful illustrations of the believer's relationship with him is the one that we're looking at this morning. It's that picture of the vine and the branches. Just as branches can only bear fruit if they abide in the vine, um, so can we as Christians only bear fruit if we're abiding in Christ. And so if a branch is cut away from the vine, it will begin to die immediately. It may not look like it's dead at first, in that first minute or in that first hour, but by the end of the day, I guarantee you those branches and those leaves will be noticeably wilting and will be droopy. Branches depend on the vine for their life. They depend on the vine to receive water and nutrients so that they can bear fruit. And if you cut a branch away from the vine, it has no way to thrive or even to survive at all. You see, the vine is rooted in the soil and the vine provides nourishment, which is essential for the growth and the maintenance of life. If the branch is severed, there is no lifeline. If the branch is disconnected, there is no way for it to continue to live. If the branch is cut off, it will die. And the purpose of a grapevine, as you know, is to grow grapes. The purpose of the branch is to bear fruit. And any good farmer knows that if the branches are not bearing fruit, then they have to go. You cannot have fruitless branches taking viable organic nutrients away from the fruit-bearing branches. Therefore, the branches that are not bearing fruit will be cut off. And the problem is not with the vine. 
but it is with the branch. The branch could be diseased. The branch could be rotten. The branch could already be dead. But the branch that is bearing fruit is abiding. The branch that is connected to the vine, and the vine is connected to the branch. And abiding in Christ means that we have a life-giving connection to Him. This is what theologians frequently describe as union with Christ. Notice that this connection is, is this union that we have with Christ is a mutual union. The text says we abide in Christ and he abides in us. And if there's no connection, then there's no abiding. And if there's no abiding, then there's no life and consequently no fruit. Abiding in Christ also implies dependence This aspect of abiding is not reciprocal. The abiding branch is dependent on the vine, but the vine is not dependent on the branch. The branch derives its life and power and fruit from the vine, and without the vine, the branch is lifeless, and it's powerless, and it's fruitless. You see, the sap only runs one way. Sap flows from the vine to the branch, and the sap of God's grace flows through Christ. We are completely dependent on Jesus for anything and everything, especially for spiritual fruit. And apart from him, we can do nothing. And so we're looking at this morning that abiding in Jesus also involves continuance. To abide means to continue. It means to stay. It means to remain. And so abiding in Jesus means that we're remaining in him. And this simply means that we go on trusting And we keep on depending and we never stop believing. And to abide in Jesus is to persevere in Jesus and in his teaching. And this is what Jesus is talking about in John 8, 31 and 32 when he says, If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples and you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. And so today, dearly beloved, we're going to look at this passage about abiding in Christ. And just by way of introduction, we've already learned that to abide in the vine means to be united to Jesus, to rely on Jesus, and to remain in Jesus. And so let me give you three headings as we continue to venture into this powerful text this morning and learn what it is that Jesus meant when he said, I am the vine and you are the branches. Here's your first heading this morning. Jesus is the vine. And for you note takers out there, I got a blank that you can fill with this word. Israel was the original vine. Israel was the original vine. Notice how Jesus says, I am the true vine. Now the idea of a vine is not new in Jewish culture. In fact, the cultivation of vineyards was an important part of the life and the economy of Israel. There was even a golden vine used to decorate King Herod the Great's palace. And so when Jesus introduces this idea of the vine and the branches, it's not something new. It's something that every Jew would have been very familiar with. But before we get into the fact that Jesus is the true vine, I want to just show you a little bit about how Israel was the original vine. And many times in Scripture, God displays Israel as his child. But Israel was an imperfect child. Many times in the Bible, the Bible shows Israel as God's servant. But Israel was an imperfect servant. 
And then juxtaposed to Israel is the true son, Jesus Christ, the suffering servant, Jesus Christ, who was able to fulfill fully that picture and representation of God's love and presence on earth. I mean, here's what Psalm 80, you can turn to a couple of these. I've listed them for you. If you don't have time to turn to them, you can just listen. I'm going to have you turn to the Isaiah 5 passage in just a moment. But here's a couple of places where the idea of Israel being the vine is highlighted in the Old Testament. Psalm chapter 80, verse 8 says, You brought a vine out of Egypt. You drove out the nations and planted it. Now, this verse points to how God brought Israel out of Egypt into the promised land. And God drove out all of the other nations from Canaan, Canaan, excuse me, during the conquest, and he divided Israel into 12 different tribes, into 12 different regions. And you would think that after God's deliverance of Israel out of Egypt, and after bringing them into the land of milk and honey, that Israel would want to walk close with God and never stray from him again. And yet we read another passage after they came into Israel in Joshua 24, 13, where God says to them, he says, I gave you a land on which you had not labored and cities that you had not built and you dwell in them. You eat the fruit of vineyards and olive orchards that you did not plant. Now, therefore, fear the Lord and serve him in sincerity and in faithfulness. Put away the gods that your fathers served beyond the river and in Egypt and serve the Lord. And yet, we know that the nation of Israel struggled mightily with sin. They struggled mightily, just as we struggle to obey God today. They were tempted with pride and idolatry and complacency and spiritual apathy. And so God said to Israel through the prophet Isaiah, or excuse me, I'm going to say Jeremiah first, the prophet Jeremiah 2.21, he says this, yet I planted you a choice vine, holy and of pure seed. How then could you have turned degenerate and become a wild vine. And so Israel, as we are watching the progression of the uh, nation of Israel now fully in sin, Jeremiah is warning them of the exile to come. Israel had been taken out of Egypt. They'd been in Canaan. They were the choice vine of the Lord's. And yet Israel, even though it started with a pure faith and a pure seed, is something had happened to them. Israel had been defiled. According to Jeremiah 2.21, they had become degenerate, which means that they had departed. It means that they had turned aside from following the true and living God. They had become what the Bible says is a wild vine. That idea of being a wild vine means foreign or alien. So think about this. God's like, I planted you as my vine. I chose you out of all the nations on earth. You were to represent me on planet earth. And yet now you've become like a foreigner, like an alien. You've become like a wild vine. Israel, because of its unbelief and disobedience, was no longer remaining in that covenant that God had made with them. Israel had sinned, and therefore its relationship with God had withered. It had dried up, and it was all but gone. One more passage, Ezekiel 19.12. But the vine was plucked up in fury, cast down to the ground. The east wind dried up its fruit. They were stripped off and withered. As for its strong stem, fire consumed it. 
Now, again, we're just seeing a lot of passages in the Old Testament, Psalm, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, that shows us that Israel eventually was plucked up and cast to the ground. Because of Israel's disobedience, its fruit withered and was stripped off. Fire consumed the stem of the branches. And this is what happens to those who disobey God. This is what happens to those who bear no fruit. This is what happened to Israel in the Old Testament. Don't let it happen to you. Now, I told you I wanted you to at least look at one of them with me. So turn to Isaiah 5. This may be the most prominent passage about Israel being the vine in the Old Testament. If you just wanted to look at one, Isaiah chapter 5, starting in verse 1, here's what God says about Israel. He says, Let me sing for my beloved my love song concerning his vineyard. Now, remember, he's talking about Israel. It's his vineyard. It's his vine. And God loves his people. And he wants to sing a love song to Israel concerning his vineyard. My beloved had a vineyard on a very fertile hill. He dug it and cleared it of stones and planted it with choice vines. He built a watchtower in the midst of it and hewed out a wine vat in it. And he looked for it to yield grapes, but it yielded wild grapes. And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. What more was there to do for my vineyard that I have not done for it? When I looked for it to yield grapes, Why did it yield wild grapes? And now I tell you what I will do to my vineyard. I will remove its hedge and it shall be devoured and I will break down its wall and it shall be trampled down. Now, I don't know about you, but when I read that passage, it just grabs my heart to think about how God loved his people and how he poured into his people and how they rejected him. Basically, we're seeing that Israel was a choice vine that the Lord had planted and he had dug around it and made sure the ground was fertile and he had built a watchtower in the midst of that vineyard to protect the vine and God had even hewed out a wine vat looking for Israel to yield grapes, but instead it yielded wild grapes. And so what will God do but judge that vineyard? What will God do but remove the hedge surrounding Israel and it will be devoured? And God broke down its wall and it was trampled down. Now we see in John 15, if you'll turn back to our text to us this morning, that Jesus is going to do something that Israel could not Jesus will succeed where Israel failed. Jesus will sustain true believers in the faith while the stem of Judaism was only able to yield wild grapes. The vine of Israel withered. The vine of Israel dried up. The vine of Israel was devoured. The vine of Israel was consumed with fire. What we'll see this morning is, so is every New Testament unbeliever. So is every believer of the present will get the same judgment and the same consequence of not being tapped into or abiding in the vine who is Jesus Christ. And so your next blank there in your outline, Israel was the original vine, failed, but Jesus is the true vine. Success, 
Jesus is the true vine. Again, Jesus says, I am the true vine. Look down at verse 6, or excuse me, verse 5. He says, I am the vine. Now remember, in our context of the Gospel of John, we have been looking at the seven I am statements of Christ. And this is the seventh one. And Jesus boldly uses these I am statements to say that he is divine. Jesus is saying that he is of the same substance as the Father. He is saying that he is equal with God in his character and in his attributes and in his power. And Jesus has already given us six I am statements. John 6.35, I am the bread of life. John 8, 12, Jesus said, I am the light of the world. In John 10, verse 7, Jesus said, I am the door of the sheep. In John 10, verse 11, he said, I am the good shepherd. In John eleven twenty five, 25, I am the resurrection and the life. In John 14, 6, he said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And then here we read the seventh of the seven I am statements here in John 15, verse 1, where Jesus says, I am the true vine. Jesus is saying... That by being attached to him, the true vine, then his life will flow into us. That through this relationship, God channels his grace and he grants us repentance and faith. And those who have been made alive, if you are in Christ today, you now walk with Christ, which means that you bear fruit commiserate with your repentance. And Jesus says that he's the true vine. Please note there in verse 1, he's not just a vine. He says he's the true vine. That word true, the word aletheia, it means genuine. It means trustworthy. It means that he is not an imaginary person. He is not a false god. He is really, truly, and wholly God. Now, in the Old Testament, I think part of what's going on here, he's not just saying like he's true as opposed to something false, though that's part of it. I think he's also saying that in the Old Testament, it's full of types and metaphors and copies. And they're just types and metaphors and copies of the real thing, of the true thing. In fact, the author of Hebrews reminds us of this when he writes in Hebrews 9, 24, for Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Here's what we're learning in the Bible of the Old and New Testament. The earthly tabernacle and its vessels were only symbolic replicas of the true heavenly tabernacle. Just as the implementation of the Mosaic covenant was made by sacrifices, the implementation of the new covenant was made by the sacrifice of Christ's blood on the cross. So we see here, the first was only a type. The Old Testament sacrifices were only symbols and types pointing to the sufficiency and the sovereignty and the atoning work of Christ. And so part of what Jesus is saying is like, hey, I'm the true vine. This is no longer just a type. I'm the real thing. Jesus is not a sign. He is the Savior. Jesus is not an image. He is Emmanuel. Jesus is not an allegory. He is Almighty God. Jesus is not a token. He is transcendent. Jesus is not a prototype. He is the prophet, the priest, and the king. 
And so we've got to understand here, Jesus has given us great theology about him being the true vine. We see him reference himself as being true, or the New Testament authors referencing Jesus as true. 1 John 5.20, we read, and we know the Son of God has come and given us understanding so that we may know him who is true, and we are in him who is true, in his Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. We see that word true attached to Jesus again in Revelation 3, 7, and to the angel of the church in Philadelphia, right? The words of the Holy One, the true one, who has the key of David and who opens and no one will shut and who shuts and no one opens. Revelation 19, 11 says this about the second coming of Jesus. Then I saw heaven opened and behold a white horse and the one sitting on it is called faithful and true. And in righteousness, he judges and makes war. And so from all of these verses, we see that Jesus is true, that he is real, that he is genuine, that he is the true vine, and that we are the branches. And you know what this ought to do for you this morning? This should make you want to come to him today. He is not a copy. He is not fake. He is not a phony. He is the real thing. And when you uphold the real thing, you don't want anything else. And you don't want anybody else. And you're like, I'm coming to Jesus. I'm coming to him today. Let him be my counselor. Let him be my shepherd. Let him be my teacher. Let him be the physician of my soul. Let him be my advocate. Let Jesus be your all in all. The problem is, too many of us are looking for substitutes. And too many of us are too satisfied with lesser things. And today, he's reminding us, church, I am the true vine. Come to me. Come to me. That's what this whole text is screaming. Come to me. And so let's look at our second heading this morning. Jesus is the true vine. But number two says, God is the vine dresser. God is the vine dresser. That second part of verse one, and my father is the vine dresser. Turn with me, if you will, to Matthew 21. And as you turn there, let's talk just a moment about the vine dresser is the one who tills the soil. Thus, he is a farmer. The vine dresser is the vine grower. The vine dresser is responsible for planting, fertilizing, and watering the vine. The vine dresser also prunes trains and cultivates the vine. The vine dresser protects the vine from wild animals and from thorns. The vine dresser does everything he can to ensure the success and the prosperity of the vine. Therefore, it is only right that the vine dresser is also the one who harvests the fruit and appropriates the dividends however he chooses. And Jesus says that it's his father who is the vine dresser. And so here in Matthew 21, 33 and following, we see a parable that Jesus told. It's sometimes called the parable of the tenants. Sometimes it's called the parable of the vineyard. And it's a familiar parable. And I want us to see just a couple of of cross-referencing type encouragement to us about who this vine dresser is. Matthew 21, 33, Jesus speaking says, here another parable. There was a master of a house who planted a vineyard and he put a fence around it and dug a wine press in it and built a tower and leased it to tenants and went into another country. When the season for fruit drew near, he sent his servants to the tenants to get his fruit. And the tenants took his servants and beat one, killed another, and stoned another. Again, he sent other servants more than the first, and they did the same to them. Finally, he sent his son to them saying, they will respect 
my son. But when the tenants saw the son, they said to themselves, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him and have his inheritance. And when they took him and threw him out of the vineyard and killed him, when therefore the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those tenants? They said to him, he will put those wretches to a miserable death and let out the vineyard to other tenants who will give him the fruits in their seasons. Jesus said to them, have you never read in the scriptures the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone? This was the Lord's doing and it is marvelous in our eyes. Therefore, I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing its fruits. Now in this parable, God is referred to as the master of the house who planted the vineyard. And then he put a fence around it for protection. And he built a wine press anticipating again the production of wine from the fruit of the vine. And the emphasis of this parable is to show that the son of the master was to inherit the vineyard, but the wicked tenants killed him instead. Jesus was that son. Jesus was crucified. Jesus was the stone that the builders rejected, and yet he has become the cornerstone of our faith. The point I'm trying to make in us looking at this parable of the vineyard this morning is us to see that God is the owner And it is inferred that he is therefore the master vine dresser. And we also see that the kingdom of God is given to a people, according to the end of the parable, who are doing what? It's given to a people who are producing its fruits. The kingdom of God, meaning those who are truly in Christ and believers in the God of heaven and filled with the spirit are a people who are bearing fruit. And so I believe that this parable is saying that the tenants who were overseeing the vineyard were not bearing fruit. They were so interested in advancing their own name and their own cause that they were not aiding in the fruit-producing produce of the vineyard. And not only this, but they were also the very ones who were killing the master's servants, prophets throughout the Old Testament, and the ones who killed the, the uh, the master's son, who we know is Jesus Christ. Well, no wonder Jesus says in John 15 that every branch that does not bear fruit, he takes away and throws into the fire. In fact, let's just move now to our third heading this morning. We've talked about who the true vine is. We've talked about who the vine dresser is. Now let's talk about who are the branches. And so I'm labeling this number three as individuals in the visible church are the branches, And I listed it that way on purpose because I want to give you two types of branches. Okay, individuals in the visible church, that means the ones that associate themselves and are actually in attendance, are are part of these branches. But guess what? There's two types of branches. A says there are branches that bear no fruit. What happens to them? Your next blank. These branches get taken away. The word taken, they get taken away. Look at the second half of verse two. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. You see that there? Not every branch in the vine bears fruit. This simply means that there are some branches 
that have an external attachment to the vine through association, but they do not have an internal flow of the saving and sanctifying grace of God. There is no life flowing from the vine to the branch that bears no fruit. There are multitudes, listen to me, there are multitudes of professing Christians who are in the church today whose union with Christ is only outward and there is no inward transformation. And some of them think that they are joined to Christ through church attendance. And some of them think that they're joined to Christ through baptism. And some of them think that they're joined to Christ by taking communion. And some of them think that they're joined to Christ because they are conservatives, they are Republicans, and they are against abortion. They may even post Christian things on Facebook. They may even be strong defenders of religious freedom. And they may even be loud talkers at church. But they lack the one thing that will save their soul from hell. According to Jesus in Mark 1.15, you must repent and believe the gospel in order to be saved. Salvation is not about association. It's about transformation. It's not about your works. It's about Christ's work on the cross. It's not about putting on a pretty face. It's about, it's about being redeemed by the work of God through Jesus Christ. It's all about His grace. And Jesus said this about unbelieving Pharisees in Matthew 15, 13. He said, every plant that my heavenly Father has not planted will be rooted up. These Pharisees would be rooted up. They would be removed. They would be cut off because they were blind to the true gospel. And Jesus says it this way in Matthew 13, 12, for, no, for to the one who has, more will be given, and he will have an abundance, but from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. This is basically saying that there are the haves and there are the have-nots. There are those who have received the grace of God through faith alone and So they will be bearing fruit and bearing even more fruit. And then there's those who have not received the grace of God. And whatever that person has, the Bible says, will be taken away from him. And some people get confused here about how is it that Jesus says in verse 2, every branch in me. Big debate on this verse in Christendom about whether or not these branches that don't bear fruit can still be believers. And I think you've already heard my position is they cannot And what I'd like to say about those who would still say, well, it says every branch in me, my answer would be this teaching of Christ in this narrative is to be understood differently in its context than the teaching of Paul in the epistles. When the epistle of Paul teaches that we're in Christ, that is a metaphor of what seems to be everyone who's actually born again and truly saved with Christ dwelling in them. And this story that Jesus teaches or this illustration that Jesus teaches, it seems to mean that every person who professes to be my disciple would still be considered a branch but there's good branches and there's bad branches. There's branches that are truly bearing fruit and those who are not. And those who are not cannot be considered to be really abiding in the vine. That's what this whole text is about. And you say, well, how could that happen? 
Well, 1 John 2.19 explains it to us. They went out from us, but they were not of us. If they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they are not of us. Just like Judas would have been considered a disciple, right? If you ask the question, was Judas a disciple or not? You would say, well, yeah, he was a disciple. But was he a true disciple of Christ? Of course not. He had just walked out of the upper room just before Jesus started teaching some of these things to us. So just because you're a branch doesn't mean that you're a Christian. In this very teaching of Christ, he's saying there are those branches that bear fruit and those branches that, like Judas, will be cut off. And so we could certainly ask the question, well, why are these branches not bearing fruit? And the answer would be number two, your next blank, these branches are not bearing fruit because they are not abiding. Look down at verse six. He says, if anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers and the branches are gathered and thrown into the fire and burned. Jesus is very clear about those who will be associated with the church, but they are not of God. How will we know who is of God and who is not of God? Well, Jesus says that you will know them by their fruit. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. And he goes on to talk about you can't take grapes from a thorn bush, and you can't have a thorn bush bear grapes, and the good tree bears good fruit, the diseased tree bears bad fruit, and for the bad tree that does not bear fruit, it's to be cut down, Matthew seven nineteen, and thrown into the fire. Thus, you'll recognize them by their fruit. So again, we're saying that a bad tree is diseased and will bear bad fruit. It will bear thorns. It will bear thistles. A false prophet and a false professor may look good on the outside, but on the inside, they are rotten to the core. They are filled with pride and deception. And you must look at them carefully and you must listen to them cautiously. And in the end, every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. John 15, 6, Jesus says, if anyone does not abide in me, again, you can't bear fruit if you're not abiding. You must come to Christ. You must be crucified with Christ. You must continue in Christ in order to bear fruit. Otherwise, you have no good fruit, only rotten, diseased, and dead fruit. So these branches are taken away. These branches are not bearing fruit. And number three, these branches wither are gathered and thrown into the fire. Into verse 6, says they're gathered up and thrown into the fire. I believe that Jesus makes it very clear in this verse exactly what will happen to the branch that bore no fruit. That branch will be taken. That branch will be cut off. That branch will be thrown away. That branch will wither and die. And then it will be gathered with all of the other dried out dead branches. And they will be thrown into the fire. And they will be burned. This is a very similar end as what happens in the wheat and the tares parable. The good seed sowed into the field grew up to produce wheat. But during the night, the enemy came and he sowed tares or weeds into that field. And here's what Jesus says will happen to them in Matthew 13, 40 through 42. Just as the weeds are gathered and burned with fire, so it will be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send His angels and they will carry out 
of his kingdom all causes of sin and all lawbreakers and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. This is clearly a picture of hell. All of the branches that do not bear fruit will be thrown into the fire. And all the people who claim to be attached to Christ but don't really know Christ. And so they're not bearing the fruit of Christ. They will be gathered and they will be thrown into hell. And let me tell you something. Hell is a real place where the Bible says the worm will never die and the fire will never be quenched. Hell, according to the scripture, is a fiery furnace where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And I heard someone say just recently, hell doesn't scare me. Well, let me tell you about that person who would say hell doesn't scare me. You better be afraid. You better be scared of hell, but you better be even more scared of the holiness and the wrath of God that will send every person there who does not repent and believe. And in repenting and believing, it's just automatic that they're going to be bearing fruit. The Bible says, the fool says in his heart, there is no God. And if you're here today and you don't know Christ, that I call you to repent of your sin. If you're here today and you don't know the Lord Jesus Christ, I'm calling you out of darkness and into light. And I'm saying that God loves sinners like you. And I'm saying that you may be a branch on the vine that today bears no fruit. But by the end of this day, Through repentance and faith in the gospel, you could become a fruit-bearing branch. Some people say I only preach hellfire and damnation, but I'm about to preach the good news of the good branch. Are you ready? Because some of you look a little scared out there. And you ought to be, right? We ought to take it seriously what God's word says. But the next bullet point here, B, branches that bear fruit. Number one, these branches will be pruned. You're like, thanks a lot, Pastor. We may not be going to hell, but we're about to get cut. Well, that's exactly right. We're about to get cut and pruned. Verse 2, every branch that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. Now, the branches that do not bear fruit are taken away. But the branches that bear fruit are pruned so that they can bear more fruit. To prune means to remove superfluous growth from a plant. It means to cut back productive branches so that they can produce even better. If the branches of a grapevine, some of you may know this, you may have grapevines here in Southern California, but if the branches of a grapevine are not pruned every year, they will grow long and leafy. They will be filled with foliage, but they will not have much fruit. And if the goal is to bear fruit, then we need to cut away some of that extra foliage. And I believe that the way that God prunes us is through the trials that he brings into our lives. He loves us so much, he's going to purify us. He loves us so much, he's going to get rid of some of that extra stuff that doesn't really matter. And he does it through trials. 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 6 and 7, In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith more precious than gold, 
that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. You see, God says that trials, the trials that we face, test the genuineness of our faith. And if we have true faith, then when we go through trials, our faith proves to be more precious than gold. Trials are used by God to refine us in the fire and to remove the dross and to remove the impurities and to remove the inconsistencies so that all that is left is praise, glory, and honor to our great God. Don't you want that? Don't you want him to remove the mess out of your life and the junk out of your heart so that you can worship him with purity and single-minded devotion? Then you got to be pruned. It doesn't happen any other way. Romans 5, verses 3 through 4. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance. And endurance produces character. And character produces hope. And so not only does the Bible teach us that God brings trials into our lives to refine us, but he brings them to our lives to make us stronger so that we can rejoice in our sufferings and that we can know that God brings them for a reason. And that reason is he wants to produce endurance in us. He wants that endurance to produce character in us. And he wants that character to produce hope in us. James 1, 2 through 4, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. This passage says that the test of our faith produces steadfastness, meaning that we have the capacity to hold on and to bear up in the face of our difficulty, and when steadfastness has its full effect, when it has its finished result, then you are made perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. You know what that means? Right now we're lacking. Before the trial, you're lacking. You're lacking some understanding about God. You're lacking some type of emboldened power in your own Christian testimony. You're lacking some type of extra foliage that you're hanging on to. And so through the trial, he just starts cutting those things away. And as he cuts them away, he's telling us, oh, I'm going to remove all of that. I'm going to take that all away through these trials that I'm bringing into your life so that you're no longer lacking. So that now you're just holding on to Jesus because he's all you got that you may bear more fruit. God wants your faith to be stronger. He wants your fruit to be better. He wants the aroma of your faith to be more potent. He wants you to reflect him and to continue to mold you and shape you that you would reflect the goodness of the vine. I believe that there are good things that happen through the trials that God brings in our life and through the pruning. We just don't like it. And we don't like it because we don't trust God. Or we don't like it because you just don't like the pain. You know, it's like an athlete, no pain, no gain. And you just got to realize that's how God works. And if we see that and we keep focusing on the so that I can have more endurance, so that I could be a better witness, so that I can love Christ more, then I think we would be a little bit more open to like, you know, I need to be pruned. I need to go through the fire. Branches that bear fruit are pruned and branches that bear fruit also, number two, these branches must be continually abiding in the vine. 
They must be continually abiding in the vine, verses 3 through 5. I think I'm just going to touch on this for a little bit because I want to take the time that we need to adequately develop what's going on in the rest of the passage now that we kind of set the table. But verse 3 says, Already you are clean because of the word I have spoken to you. We'll just start right there for a moment. That word clean means to be pure. It means to be free from guilt. And Jesus had already said this once in the upper room discourse in John 13, 10, when he's, you know, having that conversation with Peter about washing his feet or washing his whole body. Remember, Jesus said, the one who has bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not every one of you. So when he uses that word cleansing, he's talking about someone who's been saved. They've been born again. Verse 3, already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Jesus has already cleansed the believer with his words of truth and his words of grace and his words instructing us on repentance and in belief. And so now Jesus is saying to his disciples here in verse four, now that you're clean, Judas is gone. He's just talking to the 11 believing disciples that are left. They just left the upper room, remember at the end of chapter 14, and they're walking to the garden of Gethsemane. And it's while he's walking to the garden of Gethsemane, they're seeing those huge olive trees. There's also very likely grapevines just present in that area And Jesus begins to teach them, verse 4, abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. Now I want to come back and just pick up there next time so that we can just take our time in verses 4 through 8 to talk about what does it really mean to abide in the vine. But for now, let me just ask you this. How are you doing? Are you just attached to the vine externally, or are you abiding in the vine with every fiber of your being? If you are a branch that bears fruit, are you willing and wanting to be pruned in the areas where God wants to grow you? Do you trust God enough to know that he's going to prune you in the right spot, at the right time, and in the right way? Are you going to be one of those branches that you can just move? You know, some plants move. When the bug falls in, it can just like close up. Are you going to be like trying to apply that to your dynamic? You know, here comes God with the vine dressing pruning uh, clippers, and you're just like, oh, move over here, move over there, right? I think we need to be like, after reading this text, we're like, Lord, I need help. And that person doing the pruning could be your pastor. It could be an elder. It could be your small group leader. Get this. It could be your spouse who's pruning. You, through the word of God, showing you, caring for you. Children, your pruners might be God's using your parents to discipline you out of their love for you. We need to be pruned in the right way, ultimately from God, from his word, but he uses all of us as instruments to help accomplish what he wants to do. Let me ask you this morning, do you want to bear more fruit? I mean, are you content? It's like, ah, I just go for the small grapes. You know, that's, I, just want, I just want it to be watered down. I like watered down grape juice, you know, like, you know, just... water, 10% grape juice. No, I mean, you want the real stuff, right? I mean, do you want to bear much fruit? That would be like me asking you, do you want a lot of money or a little bit of money? Do you want a lot of love or a little bit of love? Do you want to have a, a big impact or a tiny impact? Do you want to leave a big legacy or a tiny legacy? Do you want to be a floundering Christian or a flourishing Christian? And in order for that to take place, we've got to be abiding in Christ. 
so that we can bear much fruit. I can't wait to pick this passage up with you next week, and we'll keep going deeper. Let's close today in prayer. Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for reminding us of this truth, of your word, of Jesus being the true vine, of God in heaven, our Father, being the divine vine dresser. And then, Lord, we're the branches. And the question really is, are we a good branch or a bad branch? Are we a fruit-bearing branch or a non-fruit bearing branch. God, I pray that as we continue to examine this passage, that you would help us as a church learn what it means to abide in you and to love you and to welcome your pruning and to appreciate your fertilizing and to understand your working in our lives. Our job is just to hold on. Our job is to stay attached in a thorough way that would allow all of the water and all of the nutrients of your word to flow into us as a branch that we might blossom and that we might bear fruit that would be honoring to our God, honoring to our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.